1: This episode was sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a subscription box inspiring girls to believe they can be and do anything. Real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them.
2: Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. If you wanted to be remembered forever... (laughs) <laughs> we have established in previous episodes that you do not. <laughs> but if you didn't want to be buried in an unmarked grave and forgotten forever, uh-huh. <laughs> how would you go about
1: making sure that you were famous forever? <laughs> well, I actually had an ancient history professor once who gave me some advice about this. Ah. If you want to be remembered centuries from now... Make a little time capsule about yourself and bury it in the backyard, <laughs> <laughs> and then in the future, historians five, six thousand years in the future, they might come across it, and it'll be ah. this little nugget of historical artifacts, and they'll go, "Yay, hooray for this wonderful famous person!" So that's one ah. strategy. Yeah, that's a good. <laughs> that's a good like
2: very long game strategy. Right. Oh yeah,
1: he's always thinking in very long term. Like right. That. Of course. Yeah.
2: What if you want to assure that you are still famous in 200 years? Oh, well,
1: I feel like the historical stories that get told over and over and over again are the good stories. Hmm. Humanity loves a good tale. So I guess I would try to frame my life in a really great narrative so that it is compelling listening. <laughs> that would be my best move, I think.
2: Ah, so it's not about quality, it's about, nah,
1: narrative. <laughs> yeah, I think it's all in the narrative. Even our ideas of who is a hero are always going to change, but if it makes a great story, then no matter what if I have a compelling story, then I think it will get told. In fact, on the top of all my world history syllabi, I have a little quote that says, the world is made of stories, not of atoms. I think that's really true.
2: So how important do you think it is to have a champion? Mm.
1: In the words of a great philosopher, who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Yeah, I think it's huge. I think if you have a good storyteller who frames your life in a very interesting way, then everybody's going to be interested. Hmm. You mean even a life
2: of someone like Alexander Hamilton could become a really compelling tale that would be embraced by teenagers worldwide? (laughs) Precisely. Well, you've convinced me. Great. (laughs) And that was the fatal flaw, I guess, of the women that we're talking about today. Oh, women. Women. Two women. Mm. Today we're going to talk about two sisters. Oh, cool. They were known in their lives as the Mrs. Porter. M-I-S-S-E-S. The Mrs. Uh, Porter. Okay. And they were probably the most wildly popular authors of the British Regency period.
1: Oh, wait. You mean the period that Jane Austen owns? Exactly. And they were way, way, way
2: more popular than Jane Austen. Whoa. I'm Olivia Mickle, And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's-Her-Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. So Jane and Anna Maria Porter were sisters who were born in England in the late 1700s to a genteel but very poor family, just like all of Jane Austen's heroines. Just like all of Jane Austen's heroines. So to learn more about Jane and Anna Maria Porter, I talked to Professor Devonie Lozer.
0: Uh, I'm Devany Lozer, professor of English at Arizona State University.
2: Devany Lozer is also the author of the amazing book, The Making of Jane Austen. She's also a really prominent public scholar. You've probably seen her talking about Jane Austen on CNN. Her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, Salon. She's a roller derby player and the faculty advisor to the Arizona State roller derby team. (laughs) And her roller derby name is Stone Cold Jane Austen.
0: Two authors that I've become very interested in were contemporaries of Jane Austen's. They were sister novelists. One was named Jane, Jane Porter, and her sister was Anna Maria Porter. They were household names in Jane Austen's day in the early 19th century, but they've since fallen out of literary history in a way that I think is unfair. And I'm looking forward to returning more of their story to the historical record. They came from a family uh, based in Durham, their father was Irish and a military surgeon, and he died while they were very young. Their mother then, uh, the widow Mrs. Porter, whose name was also Jane, I'll just call her Mrs. Porter, she was left not only with the two girls, Jane and Anna Maria, but with three other sons, and had you know quite a handful to try to negotiate a sudden death of her husband to try to raise them. She sent the two older ones off to different kinds of apprenticeships, but she kept Robert Kerr Porter, the brother, Anna Mariah and Jade with her, and they moved from Durham to Edinburgh. And uh, she ran a boarding house there.
2: A fact which they would keep very quiet for the rest of their lives, hmm. because that's not a very genteel way to make your living.
0: But we do know that their mother cared very much about education, and that the three were, all of them, prodigies in their own ways. Anna Maria Porter was the first of them to publish a book, a collection of stories called Artless Tales, claiming that she was 13. Probably she was a little older than that. This was a common thing for child <laughs> writers uh, in those days to like, undersell how old they were. So she was the first in print, and she published under her own name. This was a, an important milestone, I think, for the family, showing that their artistic prowess it deserves to be recognized under their own name. So Anna Mariah's first went out there with that 1793 book, and Jane also started publishing in the later 1790s. She was the first one, though, to hit with a bestseller, and so she had those two bestsellers, Thaddeus of Warsaw and The Scottish Chiefs.
2: Daphne Lozer points out that we've sort of oversold the idea that women didn't publish under their own names because of Jane
0: Austen we assume that her situation is the norm. it looks like about half of the novels from this period and let's say 1770 to 1830 were published anonymously and from those we can identify an author's sex about half were published by men and half by women so I think it's a much more mixed landscape of gender than we have really made sense of in the past.
2: Oh wow isn't that interesting yeah that's cool. So they have a whole sister's shtick?
0: Neither one of them married. They lived throughout their lives with their widowed mother, not unlike Jane Austen's household, living with her widowed mother and her sister and sister-in-law. So there are some parallels there. But I think where the porters differed is they were also public figures. So they would travel. One would travel, the other would travel. One would stay with their mother, who was sickly. We have thousands of letters describing their lives, and it's clearly from these letters, um, which are just a, an amazing pleasure to read, that they faced great challenges in being public women. The fact that they were sisters certainly helped them. I mean, it was a shtick, right? It was right. The, the Mrs. Porter. They were a thing. So I, I think it worked to their advantage, especially before the Brontes. The Brontes certainly overshadowed them as sister novelists once they came to the fore, and I think we're much more interested in telling the story of the Bronte sisters and yeah. all of its color and tragedy. Right. Uh, but there definitely is a similar story to be told for the Porter sisters. They very much encouraged each other's writings hmm. and made it possible for them to have really remarkable, uh, although sometimes quite painful, public lives.
2: Hmm. So I think, you know, that's what, Daphne Lozer finds so interesting about them is that they really are sort of the first women who are making this into a full-fledged career, sort of. They're doing speaking engagements. Mm. They're creating this persona of the sister authors. In modern verbiage, they've got a brand. Yeah. Oh, they had a very strong brand. In a way, I see them as early
0: career women. Uh, You know, maybe not. I don't know that they ended up with entirely chosen lives. Mm. I don't think they had a set of really fantastic choices to make. But once they became public women, it was very much harder for them to negotiate the marriage marketplace, and especially public women without money. (laughs) But they were able to live as professional women writers. They just could never get ahead.
2: They're really innovating this idea of creating a brand, of of doing authory things. That women were not doing. Men were doing this, but women were not. And they're limited in what they can do and how they can do this. Mm-hmm. You have to promote yourself without being seen to promote yourself. Mm-hmm.
0: There were other celebrity female authors. I mean, Mariah Edwards, Frances Burney, Sidney Owens, and Lady Morgan. There were women who crafted careers and, to some degree, made a living off of their writing. Jane Porter in particular was just absolutely intrepid. She was very interested in her own persona. An author having a kind of a, a looker, an accessory associated with him was not uncommon. Sidney and Lady Morgan, wrote this novel, The Wild Irish Girl, and there was this kind of sense of her as this lively, heart-playing right. woman. <laughs> it, was her, it was her image, right? Yeah. So Jane Porter's image was a lot more buttoned down. She was made a member of the Order of Saint Joaquin. And so she started wearing these, they look like nuns habits. And there's some portraits of her in a black veil. And people think, well, she's a nun? And she absolutely wasn't. She was very much Protestant. But she was also very devout. And she was apparently tall, striking. Some of her letters talk about her wishing that she'd been born a man because she would have been an important figure in politics. Uh, she really had a sense of herself as somebody who had a presence. The fine line, though. I mean, I think we still struggle with what does it mean for a woman in leadership to project authority, but to do so in a way that's inoffensive, uh, doesn't scare people. And by people, I mean both women and men, but especially yeah. men, right? right. This, is, this idea that you, know, you need to be. You know, not the scary kind, but the palatable kind. And in some ways, it led them to make decisions that you shake your head at, rather than give them a fist bump for. (laughs) But they were definitely in uncharted territory.
1: They
2: may seem like these are the women who are living the dream. They are owning their talent, they are doing what they love, Mm -hmm. and they are making it work without a man. Yeah.
0: You can tell from their writings. The sisters really felt like they were in a difficult bind as public women. And there's one especially moving letter from the 1820s where Anna Mariah is in correspondence with a woman who's asking about making her daughter, I think, a singer. It's a musical career that she's considering. And Mm -hmm. she's asking Anna Mariah, should I do this to a teenager? You know, what does it mean to become a public woman? And Anna Maria, in no uncertain terms, says public fame for a woman is the death knell of private happiness. And she says this she believes is because men can't handle it. She says even the best of men consider this to be propriety stomped on. <laughs> right? Like, this is not behaving in the way one should. But you know the worst of them see it as, in the line she uses, as putting arms in the hands of a slave that women having any kind of public fame or public power is, for some men, something of hatred, deep skepticism, going way beyond their station. Of course, there's a long history of women seeing themselves in some ways as enslaved, and lots of people have problematized connecting those two terms. But for women at the time, I think this kind of imagining the ways that they were constrained and judged harshly and put down. I think using those terms was a powerful way for educated women who were trying to imagine another life to see the limitations on them.
2: They did not want to be writers. They wanted to be married. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we hear a lot about authors who have to get it out Mm -hmm. or it's going to kill them and they were not that way they were writing because they needed to eat (laughs) they were good at what they did and i think they were proud of being good at what they did but this was not their chosen life this was the life that fate handed them Mm. and unfortunately the better that they got at what they were doing and the more well-known they got the more impossible it became for them to leave the life of the public author Yeah,
1: the more successful writers they became, the less marriageable they were. Yep. Oh, how sad. They felt very limited
0: by their celebrity. And rather than living lives of great acclaim, they felt they were living lives of great constraint.
1: A pedestal can be a cage. Yes. Just as much as a cage is. (laughs)
0: They were very much motivated by supporting themselves. They also clearly had gifts and were not shy about showing the world that they had them with the motivation that they needed it for self-support. And although they were best known for their novels, the sisters were publishing, as most women writers were in this time, in any genre you can imagine. Anna Raya published poetry. She wrote an opera. Jane wrote plays. They contributed to one periodical, they edited another. They had their hands in anything that they could do for the public for pay. To call it hack work is probably somewhat of an overstatement, but Anna Maria in particular was, was writing because she had to, not because it was a passion. They were working enormously hard. It's incredible productivity. And you know, I don't, I don't mean to completely downplay the quality of it. The Hungarian Brothers, from 1807 is probably Anna Maria's most famous work. But some of her works also outlasted her life and continued to be published after her death. So you know, some of these continue to speak to people. They were genteel poverty. What, yeah. What that means? Right. Three, three women, a cottage, and one servant.
1: It's funny that I mean, looking back in the past, having a servant still can equate to poverty yeah only oh you only have one servant oh how terrible
2: <laughs> yeah it's such a terrible life but for the status that they should be living in mm-hmm. this was really embarrassing yeah
0: yeah there's one letter where they say you know the world expects us to be rich and little do they know we have only a handful of pounds to our name the reality though is they were quite well paid. Jane was getting 300 pounds a novel, Anna Mariah 200 pounds. This is a nice amount of money. I mean, Jane Austen was paid 10 pounds when she sold her first novel, Susan, right? Famously, right? So they were getting hundreds of pounds. The problem is that money was being used to pay off the brothers' debts. They ended up supporting them more than being supported by them, which is really the opposite of what you would expect would happen to unmarried women.
1: Supporting their brothers, just like the Brontes. (laughs) Yeah, and when the Brontes came along,
2: there were lots of Mm comparisons. So their favorite brother, the one that they really saw
0: as the shining star of the family, Robert Kirkwater, he ended up being the one who took the family to London. He was a talented artist, and he ended up going as a teenager into the Royal Academy. And he became also internationally famous. First for his panoramic paintings. This was in Vogue at the time. These amazing surround paintings. You would walk into a theater, or sometimes you'd have them outdoors in the tent, and you were meant to feel like these enormous key things, often a battle scene, was putting you there. Kind of like how we imagine the IMAX IMAP theater now. Right, right you're, yeah. You're in the surround, right? This was a, a precursor to that. Robert Kaporter became famous for those. He ended up being hired by Sarah Alexander to go to Russia and became a Russian court painter. Oh. While he was there, a, a Russian princess fell in love with him. They ultimately ended up marrying. This was supposed to be the thing that made the family. famous brother marries a Russian princess, right? Yeah. But this was during the Napoleonic Wars when they finally married, and uh, you know Russian estates tended not to be worth so much. Yeah, and in fact, even the even the princess ended up being a drain on Jane and Anna Maria Porter financially. Uh. He took a position as a diplomat in Venezuela, Mm. uh, partly I think to escape his creditors in England, (laughs) but also because it was a job that he he could get to try to dig his way out. Yeah. And so they wrote also these enormous letters. I mean we're talking fifty page letters back and forth wow. that also survived describing all the things that are happening in their lives. So that the Porter's lives are exceptionally well documented and the the kinds of things that they observed and experienced were really very moving.
2: Wow. And they're not just fifty page letters, they're fifty page cross letters, if you know what those are. No, what's you know, a- it used to cost Per sheet of paper. And so you would write your letter and then you would turn the page 90 degrees and write across what you wrote before. Like on top of it? On top of it. So it looks like like a checkerboard of where all of the words are going top to bottom. Then you turn the page and they're going sideways across those words. (laughs) And they're crazy hard to read but've I've read quite a lot of these it was very common in the 18th 19th centuries for people to write this way the University of Kansas Special Collections actually gave us permission to use an image of one of Robert Kerr Porter's letters to Anna Maria Oh, cool so I've put it on the website and people can try to decipher it's oh, so wow. difficult
1: so are they writing on top of old letters or are they like just writing their no own in the letter? same letter when they run out of yeah. paper they just turn it sideways and keep going yeah wow that's wild
2: i can't remember exactly when but sometime in the mid 1800s a new post rate came out that it was just penny post no matter Ah. how many sheets of paper and so it wasn't as necessary anymore paper became cheaper postage became cheaper and there's this funny etiquette writer scolding people for still crossing letters and she said Ah. this used to be a sign of intimacy now it's just rude stop (laughs) it (laughs) wow so yeah, we have a we have an example on the website if people want to go and
1: see what these look like. And try to imagine reading 50 pages of cross Wow, letter. Cool. It's interesting to imagine having to mince your words like that where today it seems like even just with texting and email it's unlimited and you just you just say everything you have to say. Yeah. Yeah, although there is Twitter. Oh,
2: right. Yeah. And I think that's good point. I think that's an interesting construct of Twitter huh. that you're forced to be very concise in what you say. Yeah. My final process when I write, I get it absolutely perfect, and then I cut 10%. <laughs> and it's agony every time, but it's always better. And so I find right. sort of the writing discipline of being forced to cut anything unnecessary, Yeah. that my tweets are better than what I would have written if I had more space.
1: <laughs> Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor,
2: Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls
1: to believe that they can be and do anything. Every crate features an inspiring woman with a booklet about her and hands-on steam activities. We're still doing the activities. I was so impressed by it. It was genuinely cool. That's awesome. The design of the booklet and everything is so well done and you get these separate bags for each experiment and all the supplies and it's really cool. That's awesome. Go to GirlsCanCrate,
2: C-R-A-T-E, C-R-A-T-E com, and use the code HERNAME, all one word in all caps. You'll get 20% off your first month's crate of any subscription that you order.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Because the Porter sisters were making money from writing, they were often the ones digging their brothers out of debt and out of financial holes. And living in fear that the brothers' creditors, especially Robert's creditors, would realize that there was more than one of them. Mm. And if they did that, he could have ended up in debtor's prison. One brother, John, did end up going to debtor's prison and died there. So this wasn't just like a fear. This actually did happen. He died in debtor's
2: prison.
1: Ah, wow. I mean, that they didn't get him out is...
2: Right. (laughs) She's not sure if they didn't bail him out or they couldn't. That they really were just running a few pounds ahead most of the time. They certainly didn't expect him to die there.
0: Hmm. And, you know, sometimes it was speculation. You know, the, as I said, the, the princess turned out not to be a great financial. Yeah. <laughs> she cost them more money than she brought them ultimately. Right. Speculation and business debts, I think. Although there was definitely some profligacy with the older brother, mm-hmm. And I think that's one reason why they didn't end up getting him out. I'm not sure that they had the means. I don't think they did. But, you know, he was the one, I think, who was likely the most profligate.
2: So the reason we know all of this is because they're going around being public figures. So they're writing to each other constantly. They saved everything mm. because they knew they were famous. Right. And they knew that someone would want to write a book about yeah. them. Yeah. Which seems like hubris, but
1: it's not really. It's just... All famous people realize that. Yeah. Like famous people know that their house is going to become a museum after they die, so they intentionally don't move anything. Yeah. Yeah. If you're famous, then you're famous. (laughs) They were household names. It might be
0: slightly overstating it to say they were the J.K. Rowlings of their day, but Mm -hmm.
1: not that much.
0: They really had a period where they were the it girls in literary history. The idea that Somebody would want to write about their lives, they were absolutely convinced that they deserved it. They were the Mrs. Porter, but they were not wanting that to be something that they directed.
2: You know, at this time, usually shortly after you die, someone will write
1: your biography.
0: There's a letter where Jane Porter says, here are my things, (laughs) and I very much look forward to someone writing a biography using them. And she writes the name of two different people she thinks will be likely to write her biography. Spoilers, they don't. Oh. Jane Porter died in, in 1850. The brother she was living with died shortly after she did. And there really was no one left from the family to take care of those papers. So they were purchased by this famous bibliophile named Sir Thomas Phillips.
2: He decided he wanted to own everything that had ever been written, by which I mean everything that had ever been written. So he just went around buying up manuscripts and letters and everything that anyone who might be at all important had ever written down. (laughs)
0: And his heirs were not quite so excited about all that he Right. (laughs) spent a century trying to sell it off. So Sir Thomas Phillips is the guy who ended up with the Porter Papers. It's how they were saved, but it also means that they weren't in the public eye. They were, you know, with this man who wanted to own every manuscript that ever existed with all this stuff, squirreled away. It wasn't until the mid-20th century that Sotheby's gets a hold of this part of the Phillips collection, sells it off, and it ends up, a great portion of it, coming to the United
2: States.
1: So now all of the Mrs. Porter's stuff is in America, even though they never came to America. Wow, oh, interesting. I mean, isn't that pretty much what happened to Lola Ridge also? That her stuff went to somebody who tucked it away and didn't do anything with it. Exactly. And so
2: even though they're wildly famous when they die, mm-hmm. you know, with Lola Ridge, there is this shift that the things that she was doing are no longer popular. That's not true with the Mrs. Porter. That The things they're doing continue to be popular mm. and they were still seen as incredibly important But because no one has access to their papers, no one writes their biography. Mm.
0: There are probably in the neighborhood of 7,000 manuscripts and letters. And again, when we say letter, it could be a 50-page letter. It's an enormous, enormous archive.
2: Their literature remains very popular. Their books remain really popular well into the 20th century. But no one knows their story anymore. And exactly as you were saying, without a good story to hook these books on, they just fell out of fashion. No one cared about them anymore.
0: Wow. I'm at work on one, and there are others of us who are are working on them, so I'm hopeful that that won't stay the case much longer. But without a kind of biographical tradition behind them, I think the novels were still remembered, but they as individuals didn't have a story anymore. I'm not the only one. As I say, Tom McLean has been working on them. Fiona Price has been working on them. There are a number of scholars that work on books. So I think we're going to see more about the
2: Porters in the Mm -hmm. coming years. The Scottish Chiefs was popular well into the 20th century, right? Yes. So it's kind of, so 1810, it was
0: published and it was a sensation. President Andrew Jackson loved it. (laughs) <laughs> and Napoleon found it so dangerous that he is said to have banned it. Uh, at least that's what Jane Porter, Jane Porter claimed it. So it was a global phenomenon. A lot of their novels center on men who head out into the battlefield and do great feats of valor on the battlefield for their country and and return back to their mothers, sisters and uh, romantic love interests and do a lot of crying. They're these these strong heroes who return home crying about every third page. And I just don't see us being in a place where men who are doing a lot of crying are gonna come back into fashion, which is a shame, frankly. The combination that they were working in really spoke to that time, but doesn't speak so much to ours.
2: It's not about quality. It's just about whether we like this thing that they were doing anymore. Starting in the 20s, we didn't like sentimental fiction anymore. We saw that as children's literature. Oh, interesting. And one of my least favorite things that we do in the literature field is, as soon as something is branded children's literature, it is the kiss of death.
0: As that happens, critics embraced it less. If it yeah. was a children's book, then it wasn't great literature. And by the 1950s, the *Classics Illustrated* comic book series—I I just am fascinated to find it. Mm-hmm. Did a Jane Porter's *Scottish Chiefs*?
2: Ah, okay. <laughs> and by
0: then, uh, yeah, isn't that amazing that it was still circulating in those terms? But being shelved with the children's books didn't help it in terms of being taught in high schools and colleges.
1: Surely Harry Potter has changed that a great deal. It has a bit, not nearly as
2: much within the academic study of literature as it has in pop culture. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, adults reading young adult fiction now. That's a thing. Yeah, pop culture. It's completely normal.
1: Yeah, pop culture doesn't care if it's children's lit or not, or, or if right. anything, we we like it more, perhaps.
2: Yeah,
0: I think so. I mean, it's such a double-edged sword because, of, because on the one hand, it kept her alive. There just isn't the same kind of narrative about their importance or who they are. Now, there was a, a Broadview Press edition of The Scottish Chiefs that was edited by Fiona Price. So it mm. is now available.
2: So, you know, I think it is easy to dismiss this as just we forgot them because they became irrelevant. Because, you know, it's not that they were women. It's that we don't remember anyone who was doing this kind of literature. But it's not entirely true.
0: Walter Scott's a great example, right? Because, Mm -hmm. I mean, I know you know this, Olivia. He was the head honcho of the novel in the 19th century, and now she just has not read.
1: Right, yeah. You can hardly plod through them today. Well, I can hardly plod through them today. I like them, and people make fun of me. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Well, I lived in Kenilworth in England, and he wrote that novel called Kenilworth in Kenilworth. So I was like, I will read this. I am going to read this. (laughs) But every time I read them, I'm just like, oh, I cannot.
2: (laughs) I enjoy them while recognizing that we are not doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. That This is a period piece on many levels.
0: Well, I think there are parts of Scott that uh, I can embrace more than others. Yeah. <laughs> They're, They're definitely a, a phenomenon. And I think you know, he had quite a lot in common in some ways with the Porters in terms of his values. People people ask me sometimes, have oh, they forgotten Jane Austen? And mm-hmm. I feel really bad when I say, no, I don't think the novels are, are quite as delightful okay. <laughs> a read. <laughs> But partly it's what happened with literary fashion. I mean, I think Austen's humor and irony and social criticism mm. really continue to speak to us. Jane Porter believed, and I think there's a good argument she made, that she was an innovator in the historical novel and that she, in fact, was an influence on Sir Walter Scott, who was often credited with inventing it neither one of them probably invented the historical novel. Right. We can look at lots of novels that had historical influences in them prior to, you know, 1803. But Jane Porter was doing some innovative things. What is clear is that in 1803, Jane Porter published a novel called Thaddeus of Warsaw that is a work of historical fiction and has some of the same hallmarks that Sir Walter Scott's Waverly would show. It's pretty clear to me that Scott cribbed some of what he did from her. I'm especially interested in the point in her late life where Jane Porter decides, I'm just stewing over the fact that he's stolen from me. And she said, I'm going to go public with it, that I
1: deserve credit for this. Cool. It did not go well for her. No, I imagine it wouldn't. Especially not in Britain.
2: <laughs> Even though the entire reading audience knows yeah. that she invented this. Mm-hmm.
0: No one really remembers, you know, they, they remember Scott, they don't remember her attempt to write herself back into the story, a kind of Hamiltonian. Language. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I do think that that really took a lot of courage to say, I want the world to know that this is a way of understanding our careers in conversation with each other. And props to her for trying it. I wish it had yeah. worked a little better than it did, but it is, to me, it's amazing. I use this in a positive sense, but I, I think of her as, especially in late life, as a really pissed off battle axe. She's pissed. And I think that comes through in her letters. It comes through in some of the writings. And, and she was trying to write her story. And she had friends and supporters who are also, I think, supporting her in trying to rewrite the narrative. But I think it is just incredible that, I mean, she's basically calling out the trolls. She knows there are trolls coming, and she does it anyway. And I I do think that is cool, and I respect that.
2: That's why I think this is really interesting, because there is no way to predict what will stick and what will not. There is no way to tell. And it's not just that things we think will stick don't. It's that things that we make fun of become classics. When Tolkien published Lord of the Rings, he was mercilessly panned. You are wasting your time on children's literature, and it was an embarrassment to his academic
1: career. Nothing in the universe is objective. <laughs> and it's not only not objective, it's not predictable. Yeah, that's what makes it fun. That's what I love about history. You never know how the story is going to be told. Maybe we could contact Lynn manuel Miranda mm. and say, hey, there are these Mrs. Porter. <laughs> they might make for a good musical. <laughs> there you go. That's oh, how you do and it. And they'll be back quick as a flash. The shifting sands of time are what make it so great to be a historian. You just get to tell stories in new ways every couple of centuries.
2: Well, and we never know, in another 60 years, people might be having this conversation and saying, oh, isn't it amazing that people thought Jane Austen was better than Anna Mariah Porter? How silly they were.
0: (laughs) Well, as someone who loves Jane Austen, I can't say I wish for that. Uh, But it does, I think, make us look at these novels and see the kinds of things that have endured are not just this is good and this is bad, but this is what fashions were, this is what tastes were. So in 1832, Anna Mariah died. She was visiting a friend of her brother, William's and became sick, and it was a very quick decline. It was shocking, and Jane Porter was devastated. This was her life companion. I mean, again, to make another comparison to Jane Austen, Cassandra and Jane Austen were clearly very tight throughout their lives. For Jane to be the one left without the sister was, I think, devastating. And she lived, Anne Rye died in 1832, Jane Porter died in 1850, and after what appears to have been a rather long decline and and a series of illnesses. Their mother had died the year before, so she found herself going from living in a household with two other women within a year to being more or less on her own. And so Jane Porter needed to find a place to live, and she lived a kind of peripatetic life, moving from house to house as kind of a visiting celebrity. And she spent some time in her later years with her brother, William Ogilvy Porter, who was not a favorite brother. One of the things that I find especially a sad story is that in the 1840s, her novels had sold exceptionally well in the United States, and she received not a penny for that. The copyright didn't apply from Britain to the States. So her novels were bestsellers in the States. Publishers were making a lot of money off of her, and she got nothing. The publishers in the United States banded together and decided to give her a tribute.
2: They buy her a really fancy chair. (laughs) And they send this really fancy chair to the famous author Jane Porter... To thank her for (laughs) making them rich. She doesn't have a home.
0: Oh. To get a chair when you don't have a house. Yeah. As, you know, a little token gift. So, you know, I I imagine her, and this is just me imagining, but I, I imagine her in her late life increasingly having various kinds of debility, sitting in this chair... (laughs) that is a gift instead of the money that she really needed in a brother's home she didn't exactly like and that was certainly not the end she deserved
1: oh that's awful the best-selling author of the time she's got a chair to show for it i mean obviously that makes for the soul-searching soliloquy song in the musical about her life that Lynn manuel is going to write, you know.
2: Yes, there we go. I hope he's
1: listening. She'll get her redemption. I'm going to tweet it at him.
0: <laughs> well, the part that's not a bummer is that the paper survived. It documented a really beautiful collaboration with her sister, a remarkable life of writing and ideas, She thought, I think, she saw herself as having been an incredible moral influence on children and on young adults in Mm. particular, which I I think she absolutely did. She believed her life made a difference. And I think it needs to be seen in the ways that it was innovative and important, as well as in the ways in which it was a challenge and limiting and disappointing.
2: Jane Porter's most famous novel is the scottish chiefs Uh uh-huh and it is a romantic retelling of the story of william wallace oh you might be able to guess where this is going and it is still with us because it is pretty obviously the source material which mel gibson used for braveheart Braveheart, wow (laughs) cool okay
0: that part's not a happy ending to me maybe some of your listeners like braveheart more than i do (laughs)
1: She didn't know he was going to get a hold of it. <laughs> but that does mean that,
2: you know, really her her influence has lived on for 200 years. Yeah. Cool. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support more episodes of What's Your Name Podcast, please visit our website at what'shernamepodcast.com and click Donate. You can also find links to Devonie Loser's Lozer's wonderful book, The Making of Jane Austen, pictures including that picture of the crossed letter that we mentioned in the episode, and great pictures of Jane Porter's amazing Protestant nun outfits at our website at what'shernamepodcast.com.
1: Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith.
2: Music for this episode was provided by Half Pelican and Amanda Setlick Wilson.
1: You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week.
2: If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would take a minute to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, it makes a huge difference in our ability to reach new listeners and bring you more women making history. This episode was edited by Olivia Mickle, and What's Your Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazilha, Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at what'shernamepodcast.com We can't wait to see you there.